Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Marlise Cocheret de la Morinière. Marlise yeah. Cocheret de la Morinière. From now on, it's going to be Marlise during the interview. Marlise and I met at the Science and Non-Duality Conference last October. I must say, if the eyes are the window to the soul, then Marlise has a very beautiful soul. Because as I was sitting there at the lunch table talking to her, I was kind of uh, struck by the clarity and um, depth and serenity in her eyes and um, you know I've seen a lot of awakened people close up and there's, so, there's sometimes something about the eyes that really strikes you so uh, anyway that was my observation and it's been a lot of fun preparing for this interview and, and listening to at least seven hours worth of various other interviews and talks that you've done uh, mm. so I really uh, appreciate the way you the way you speak and the, the things you say so let me just read a little prepared bio here so people get an idea of your background and then we'll get into it. Uh, Marlise brings a potent invitation into the deep silence that we are. She has been offering satsang and retreat since 2000 when her root teacher, Adyashanti, asked her to teach. Marlise was trained as a psychologist in the Netherlands and works as a certified Hakomi practitioner and a certified tantric educator. She invites all seekers to live as the divine in the body. She brings together sensuality and the silence of our being. With love, directness, and humor, Marlise creates a safe place for seekers to discover and deepen into the stillness and love that is our true nature. She works internationally and lives in Santa Cruz, California. Nice place to live. Mm -hmm. Very nice. <laughs> so Marlise, I, as I listened to you and, and read the pages on your website, I was struck by um, how many different things you've done. You've had a lot of different teachers, done a lot of different practices, and are teaching or offering a lot of different things as well. Sometimes in spiritual circles they say, well, it's better to dig one deep hole than a whole lot of shallow wells, you know, if you're trying to, trying to dig a well. Uh, but, and I used to believe that rather firmly, but now I, I see so many examples of people who uh, do take a kind of a smorgasbord approach to, <laughs> to spirituality and are really the better for it. They, you know, they don't necessarily stick with one teacher for decades and decades, or they, you know, they, they go, they, they just sort of glean whatever benefit they find from a variety of different sources. Seems to have been your experience. Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't have much choice in the matter. It just happened, you know, just happened to fall from one teacher to another even though i feel the, the the teacher before so to speak was always included in the in the other teachings but i must say i feel that uh in my experience adishanti feels my as i also say in the little bio is really my root teacher feels really like my beloved teacher even though the others do too there's not really no difference and there is a difference what do, what do you mean by the phrase root teacher? I feel I'm in his lineage. Mm -hmm. He is really, he brought me all the way to the core. It's of course not just him, but I feel my, my three main teachers are first of all, well, besides life itself, of course, but first of all, uh, Rajneesh Osho. And I feel with Osho, I, I, I used to be quite shy. And so I feel with Osho, I feel for the first time I experienced just a sense of being home and then being opened, you know, learning to express myself. 
And then I was with Barry Long. Were, were you with Osho in India or Oregon or both? And in, in India, I was in India. I kind of uh, went with Osho when a lot of people were disillusioned after Oregon. After Oregon, so you weren't and participating in poisoning the salad bar or anything like no, that. No, no, no. I was not busy with that. <laughs> I'm not so good in that stuff, I think, so it's good. I came afterwards. Yeah. Now, I came in so-called Pune 2, and it was a really beautiful experience because he was just back in India, and uh, there were just like 30 or 40 people in the ashram, and they're just wow. setting it up again. And it was just very, very precious time for me because this was my first teacher guru, and then sitting in darshan with him in the morning for a few hours, in the evening a few hours, doing a lot of meditation and a lot of opening up and diving in and uh, it was just so beautiful. So going deeply. to India is kind of a big uh, leap. I mean, what motivated you to go there in the first place? Yeah, it kind of happened. I, I had been quite sick and I uh, had been bedridden and somebody gave me a book of Osho and I had like, God, this is what I've been looking for. Mm. And then I got better and studied psychology and right in the middle of my study, I was just, I was living in Amsterdam and I still remember I was bicycling in Amsterdam, as we do here in Amsterdam. And on my bicycle, I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to India. Mm. So then uh, I went home and called my brother. We didn't have cell phones then. So I called my brother, who was a pilot, and arranged us off and tickets for me. I said, you know, can you arrange a ticket for me to India? And he said, okay, when? I said, well, as soon as possible. And uh, and he said, where are you going? I, I'm going to Pune. He said, oh, you go to Rajneesh. And he I said, yes. He said, okay, cool. So then he called me back again, 10 minutes. So you're really going to India? <laughs> I said, yes. And he said, okay. So he arranged the ticket and within a week I had you sold all my stuff and um, rented out my house and was in the plane. And in the plane, I was kind of realizing, oh, <laughs> I'm not very prepared. So then some people on the plane were kind of telling me how and what. And uh, I got in Pune and... Uh, there was a darshan going on and normally the gates are closed. You're not allowed to get in. And the guard let me in and I just sat down in that darshan and I just felt home for the first time in my life. It was, was very, very moving and I, I still feel it when I uh, say it right now. It was just deeply moving. That's great. It's really beautiful. Yeah, you know, some people these days, it's kind of popular with some people to put down gurus and say, oh, you don't need a guru and gurus are all phony and, yeah. you know, and, you know, there are a lot of gurus who've given plenty of ammunition for that kind of argument, um, yeah. including Osho. I mean, there's, Absolutely. Some, there's some stuff that, you know, think people think, whoa, you know, having been with a couple of gurus myself, I, I'm definitely not one of those people who say those things, you know, because it's really remarkable sometimes. There, there are some people out there. Some of them well known, probably some of them not known at all, but who knock your socks off when you meet them. Absolutely. You, know, you realize, whoa, the people can be a lot more than we than we thought. Yeah, well, he definitely knocked my socks off. You know, I also had heard, of course, many many stories, and um, and for some reason I didn't care because being touched right in my heart and in my being seemed to be much bigger than any of those stories, even though. I knew a lot of stories firsthand of people, and uh, for some reason, it was just important to stay with him for the amount of time I was there, and it was beautiful. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because your whole orientation these days is that 
we're not just divine, we're also human beings, and being a human being can be kind of messy. And that applies to gurus, too. They're not, Absolutely. They're not spotless, <laughs> yeah. perfect, you know, right, <laughs> walking right. on clouds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's what I really also enjoy in... Uh, well, Osho fell kind of on a pedestal for me. I was not close to him, but for instance, very long you could talk with him and he felt very human, mm. you know. And with Adya, I, I'm very lucky that I can talk with him and meet with him. And I, I just love his human too, the ordinariness. Mm. And I had the luck to be also with him in his early days when the groups were 10 or 15 people. Yeah. And then we, you know, we would go after retreats together to a cafe and, and drink something with the whole group. So it was really wonderful and still is to be touched by the being and by the human. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like the whole enchilada, so to speak, and that's, that's, that's really touching. I'm going to lead you through this progressively. So what do you feel like were the main things that you derived from your experience with Osho? My sense is first uh, opening, a sense of home, first sense of home, what I had been searching for for a long time. I was searching for something. I didn't quite know what it was, but I knew when I would so-called find it that I would know it is it. And that's what happened when I was him with him. So this first taste of the being that I am. Mm -hmm. And so that was one thing. And then meditation, you know, we, you could do in the ashram, you could do meditation all day, but especially expression, because I was very scared and I was not scared to go in, but how can I say, I was just very shy. And I feel a lot of the meditations, especially had dynamic meditation in the morning, I That's remember. where they kind of jumped up and down. And yeah, jumped yeah. down and then the second stage, it's called catharsis. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I would do that, <laughs> the first few times when I would do that, I was just standing still, you know, just totally frozen. Mm -hmm. And I remember this lady leading it. She would whisper in my ear, you know, it's okay to make a sound. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I thought, well, perhaps next week. I don't know. But... I was in Punai, but then the sounding, there were so many people doing dynamic meditation simultaneously. So if you would give a beep, you know, nobody would hear it. So for me, it was a lot about expression, just breaking that veil of frozenness, really. So I feel that was the big thing, expression and coming into the body. So kind of laying a ground for that. I've been in groups both with Maharshi Mahesh Yogi's people doing the TM City program and with one time when I visited Muktananda's ashram in New York where people were, you know, making all kinds of crazy sounds, you know, howl, howling <laughs> like animals and screaming and babbling and, you know, it's like the Kundalini gets going and all kinds of stuff comes out. Is, yeah, is that definitely. the kind of sounds you, you guys were making? <laughs> yeah, any sound, you know, yeah. any sounds on this planet. Sounds of really happiness, anger, anything in between. Mm -hmm. And um, just expression. There was so much space for expression. At least that was my experience. For me, it was kind of a lot about being emptied of a lot of psychological garbage mm. or how do you say that? Luggage Baggage. that I was carrying around. And um, there was just so much space for that. So it was a beautiful combination to basically sit five to six hours a day in darshan with him mm -hmm. and then doing these different groups and uh, attending those groups. And especially I did a group with a Zen guy also within the ashram. 
So there was a lot of silence and then a lot of movement. And that man really helped me very, very much to be with me because I had a lot of emotions, a lot of crying. It's now hard to imagine. But then the first few weeks, I basically only cried. Mm. And this man just helped me like every day i just barely could stand it sounds kind of dramatic but sometimes he let me do an exercise in front of the group and i just literally would crumble on the floor and just cry and um but there was a freedom of expression so there was not a judgment anymore of anything that was happening for me or here in my experience that utter welcoming so that i would say was the main experience with osho and you were there and for about a people, year? I was there for, yeah, nine, nine ten months. Uh-huh. And, and then I went uh, back a few times, but just for a few weeks. And at yeah. the end of that, did you feel quite transformed after about nine, ten months? I mean, you feel like you, you went in an old rusty Volkswagen and you came out a Mercedes or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a nice analogy. Yeah, I felt, I felt a new, uh, I felt new. Yeah. I felt like a newborn. And uh, coming back in Amsterdam, I was like, uh, yeah, I was, I, I don't know the words to put to it. It was just very, uh, I felt just a load had fallen off my back that yeah. I didn't even know how much it was I was carrying with me. Mm. And um, then I lived a, li- a little bit for in, in, the, in the commune in Amsterdam here. Uh, and I remember Osho Commune, or Osho Commune. Okay. yeah, Osho I'd lived there just for half a year, but I felt it was too separate from the so-called world. Mm. So I went away, even though I also loved being there. It was kind of both. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Okay. And then uh, you mentioned Barry Long. Was he so Australian or something? He is Australian. Yeah. yeah. And he used to come a lot in Europe in... Uh, England and Holland and Germany. So wherever he came in Europe, I would go to him. And I feel, I feel Osho kind of opened me and I feel very, really grounded me, kind mm. of really gave a structure and really honoring. And he was speaking a lot about the love between men and women, mm-hmm. but he was especially, as I heard it, uh, supporting women not to doubt themselves and really take 100% seat uh, in themselves as who they are. So I feel in that way he helped me a lot to really come into the body in a wholesome way. I kind of feel first I was emptied and now I feel I was more like, yeah, filled up in some way. Mm-hmm. Is he still alive? And no, he passed away too. Uh-huh. I think, I don't know how long ago, seven, eight years ago, perhaps longer, I can't remember. Mm. But uh, yeah, he was he was quite rigid, rigid personality, but I felt his love so deeply. He was just very, very loving also. So it was just wonderful to be with him. He, he gave me, I would say, structure. Nice. And um, so that's kind of how I feel, like, like Osho kind of opened it up. He mm-hmm. gave kind of structure, Barry, and I feel with Adya kind of, the whole bottom was taken out, you know, mm. it's like everything, everything, everything was just basically gone. Like the ground was gone and there was like the true ground came. What, do you, what do you feel uh, were the mechanics through which Adya brought about that change in you? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think just his being, his mm -hmm. deep, and in, in my experience, well, the silence around him is just so deep in my experience. So the first time I walked in, when there was a little satsang in Santa Cruz, and uh, I walked into the room and there were just 10 people, and I sat down and it's like, oh, this is it. Mm -hmm. I just knew this is it. Mm -hmm. It's also because the, the silence is just my first love. And I felt that just resonated so deeply mm -hmm. that I just had no choice. I had like, just this, this is my guy. Yeah. <laughs> so then I just, he had a retreat, I think next week. So I signed up for that. And yeah, it just was so clearly not just from this time. I, I knew I had known him of other times too. And um, I also had an, a vision. I'm not a person that has so many visions, but I remember looking at him one time and and I saw him as this Chan master sitting there in his black robe and uh, and I had like, yeah, I was there. Mm. And uh, so I remember telling him and he said, yeah, more people have that same image. So that was interesting. So it was a kind of an another kind of homecoming mm -hmm. and just but really in the deep silence, it felt like in another way, the real deal. And also just to be close with a teacher, you know, we had Dokusan private meetings with him and that was just for me the most precious thing just in retreat or just walking into the Dokusan room and just walking into the thick molasses of silence mm. and just sitting there, you know, it doesn't even need anything to say anymore. That was the answer to anything and just being so deeply held and so deeply loved and I still feel that. I heard you say you started crying every time you walked in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I still cry when I see him often. I just start crying and we mm. both kind of chuckle. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting phenomenon, though, that, that silence that you mentioned. I felt it with Adya. I had him come to my town and give a talk and had lunch with him and stuff. And it's, it's palpable. I mean, just sitting, eating lunch with the guy, you know, and... I start having the opposite effect in a way when I get around a lot of silence like that. I start getting really talkative. Yeah, the the yeah. energy kind of gets me going. <laughs> I start yeah, yeah. It's like I'm on drank three cups of coffee or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a fascinating phenomenon. Some people emphasize that that's really what wakes people up. Is it's not so much the words anybody says. It's sort of being in their proximity, and and there's some sort of transmission effect. Transmission, absolutely. Yeah. Uh -huh. And to me, the transmission is is number one. And I felt that with him, and I feel that when I so-called teach, uh, I feel the transmission is way more than my words can speak mm. or touch. And that's often also what I hear when people. Uh, come to my satsangs or retreats that they are just very touched by the silence. So I think that's a strong thing within, as I call it, the lineage I come from. But it's also, it's, it's truly my deepest love is, is the silence. And that's my day-to-day -day experience. Do you feel that when you put yourself in a position of teaching, then the amount of juice that is sort of starts to pump through you as a transmitter gets amped up. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah, because yeah. you're serving comes, that function. and so I'm serving that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, it really comes more to the forefront. And uh, it's definitely, in my experience, amplified. But it's also amplified because you're coming together with more people. Mm. So it's like 
both ways in a way it's amplified yeah to me it's definitely palpable but also when i sit and meditate it's also feels amplified the moment i actually sense it it's <laughs> amplified <laughs> you know when we put our attention there the more and more we just are that mm -hmm. then then that's really all there is i don't quite know how else to say it so then that taste that's here of that silence or of that space or that love or whatever word you want to give it, it just takes you or takes me. And it informs me and it lives as me. And it's, it's, it's quite, I'm still kind of in awe every day, really. Yeah. I think most people listening to this will know what we're talking about, but if they don't, uh, what more can you say about that silence that we're referring to? What is it and where is it? And uh, yeah. if, if a person feels like they really don't have access to it and their, their life is being tossed about like a ship on a stormy ocean, how can they get anchored to it? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, first of all, what really helps is to just stop. Even if your mind doesn't stop, just take a moment to sit down and then take a moment to take a breath and just feeling your breath and often it helps just to first stay with the breath that helps to calm the nervous system but it's what's the invitation we we have this wonderful body and instead of going into our minds to kind of quiet it down to just go into the body and sense the body you know even right now you can just sense the breath enter and caress your body and the moment you start sensing that naturally you feel there is already something still there's something that's not thinking there's something that's not doing there's something that's just ising and then the more and more you go to that the more and more you fall fall in as i call it mm. so that's kind of a very short explanation but it really takes just being still for a moment just sit hold the body still not in a rigid way but in an open way that you open your body to let the breath the breath of shakti you could say the breath of love the breath of life come in and breathe you and then notice what is already still what is already here that's not touched by your mind what is already meditating without you doing anything and and then listen find out listen that's that's really good i mean that that right there could be instructions for somebody who doesn't practice meditation to get started and to yeah just sit down for five ten minutes or a day or whatever and yeah. uh, notice that it's already there yeah or so, even when you go to the supermarket you know you don't have to only uh, sit down but it helps to first sit down a little bit and then you know when you're standing in line in the supermarket you can kind of instead of going into your mind just kind of like okay wow well, what's already like smiling here what's already really really just here while my mind is thinking you know when is my turn <laughs> you know, it's just they're all during the day there are just so many moments sure that we can just uh, taste of love and silence but you yourself still sit to meditate every day, right? You don't just do it at the supermarket. I mean, there's that you, you reserve some period of time for re I do. real absorption into it. Yeah, 
Yeah, I love that. I just love to sit. And the more I, I start sitting over the years, the more also it uh, you know, sticks on me and I, it goes wherever I go. But that's what I find very beautiful of the different so-called lineages. So the one lineage I come from, so to speak, with, with Ajia is really sitting a lot and then that stillness sticks and then you take it wherever you go. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also quite inspired by Kashmir and Tantra and especially by uh, Daniel Ojay. And he speaks kind of in a different way about it, you know, when you are in life, whatever you experience, you absolutely, totally experience and taste the taste of life. And that brings you in that way to the silence that you are. So it's like anything in life, silence or busyness is a doorway in. And those two things sound complementary to me. Uh, mm -hmm. You can do both. Yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But there's an interesting thing in what you just said, I think, some implications. One is the, the stickiness, you know, that if you do this, and I, I think neurophysiologists could explain it in terms of various changes that take place in the brain and the nervous system as a result of that. They, some of them are stabilized, they become permanent. And another is that having sat and go, then going back into activity, because it sticks, it's not like you have to do something all day long to hang on to it or anything. Right. It's, it's like taking a shower in the morning. You're clean, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you don't, yeah. You don't have absolutely. to keep thinking, I'm clean, I'm clean, I'm clean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps you do, but I know. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I totally agree. It's like where you put your attention, that's what you get. That's mm -hmm. what grows. Yeah. So, yeah, when you sit. Also, when there's, at least in my experience, when there is a love for sitting and a love for the silence, then... You just want to, how do you call that, steep in that, like a tea bag, you know, yeah, and it gets yeah. more and more full and rich, and then everything becomes that that silence that is in here. Yeah. yeah. What would you say to those who dismiss the importance of any kind of practice? They, you know, Some people say, well, you shouldn't bother doing practices. It only reinforces the the notion of a practicer, and, and, and you know, you're already there, so why do anything, that kind of argument? I would just say very simply it's BS, but okay. <laughs> I would just be more sophisticated. Yeah. Now, I think it's important for everybody to ask themselves, what do you love to do? Because mm. sometimes meditation can be challenging. So, but also sometimes when you ask people, what do you love to do? And a lot of people also have, you know, sitting in nature or just walking in nature mm -hmm. and to take that as a, as a doorway in. And I just can only say from my own experience that sitting has helped me so much. Also, because when we sit, a lot of people first have this hope, you know, the moment I sit, then I fall directly in the silence of my being. But for most of us, you know, when we sit, right, what's there is our conditioning, right? Yeah. And all the things that we don't want to feel and don't want to hear and don't want to taste. When you come to a place, when you, truly, when you wake up and... You know, like, you know, I'm not all of this body and mind and the whole, the, the whole stuff. But in another way, you start also having the wonder and willingness to really start tasting the taste of life, no matter how she comes. And with that, the meditation is so wonderful to just make space to just sit. You know, I, I remember Adya calling at one time, you know, it's like porch sitting. 
just sit on your porch and just sit and and then just notice notice what happens and tasting the taste of life in that moment and the more we take in the taste of what is the experience right now it can be pain or it can be pleasure or it can be the ultimate silence we will all end up in the end in the resting of what we are cannot not happen so do you feel in your experience in working with students do you find that most people do eventually settle in as you're saying or you know some people complain i just don't get it i sit there i fall i fall asleep i have thoughts the whole time i'm worrying about what's for dinner or what i you know what's going on at work or do you feel like most people take to it like a fish to water they just they have an innate capability or ability to transcend or settle in or go deeper and no 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 i i feel it's a little bit of both mm -hmm. In the retreats that I offer, and even in the satsang, I always take time to sit together. And it really helps people to be in the sangha, so to speak, and taste that taste of silence together. And often I guide a little bit, and so it helps people to have a taste. Also, that it's okay to have the taste of a busy mind, mm. while simultaneously there is, there is a presence there, there is a being there. And that more and more when you bring your attention to the being or more and more you start resting as being, then the more and more you will, it starts really sticking on you. So the more we come together and you come together in a, in a group and taste that silence, the easier it will be when you go home. Also, when I work with people, I hopefully help them also to have some tools to you know, how to sit with yourself when all this psychology or, you know, mind bubbles up, because it does. Yeah. Now, yeah, that's a whole theme we could talk about and uh, that I heard yeah. you talk about quite a bit in your other talks and interviews that I listened to, which is that once, you, I think the way you phrased it was once you realize your true nature, that's not the end of it then that, that actually acts as a solvent, sort of, for all kinds of things that have been bottled up to start getting released. And yeah. I think some people think, all right, well, if I realize my true nature, I'm home free, I'm done, I just, just kick up my heels and relax, and, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it, it actually can open a Pandora's box, uh, yeah. all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. I, you know, I learned within Zen, uh, there are so-called 10 steps to enlightenment and step number three is waking up to your true nature. Yeah. So you have seven steps more. But truly, when you look at yourself and you have had a taste of your true nature, for some people, there's a long period of time that they're kind of in a trans transcendental place. But not most people, I would say not. And they fall immediately kind of back in their humanity and then how, how to deal with that. And then, you know, when you truly... What I find the big difference when you wake up to your true nature, you tend to live your life not from fear anymore, but more from curiosity. Mm. So then the curiosity kind of like, wow, this is amazing. Even though I know I'm this love, there's still this belief or this whatever it is on the surface. And then you get curious, like, gee, what is that? Well, let's look into that. And sometimes it's also really nice to do it in a group. And last week I was teaching a woman's retreat in um, UK, five-day retreat. And 
and I'm just every time struck by the deep collective emotional body of women, of females. Mm -hmm. And most of the women that come, they really have woken up to the true nature. And there's just trauma stuff that wants to come free. And so there's, there's an art into not staying stuck in the emotion, to really letting the emotion come in and let it flow out. And then it's, it's kind of a process of being emptied. So when you have woken up to your true nature, it's more and more you get emptied of anything that you don't really need. And <laughs> most things we don't <laughs> really need. <True. laughs> Yeah. Let's not presume that everybody knows what we mean by waking up to your true nature. Um, please, yeah. please explain what that means and uh, okay. how would one know when one has done that? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question because I can't really remember a so-called moment that I woke up to my true nature. It was more after the fact that a friend actually during a breakfast kind of took my hand and said to me, a lot has changed, huh? And I mm. said, yeah, actually, a lot has changed. And she said, you know, I'm so happy for you. Yeah, I'm happy too. And that was kind of my confirmation of awakening. Mm -hmm. And then I started kind of... I, th I think there's something in the Bible where it says something like the kingdom of heaven comes like a thief in the night. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like, here I am. It's, yeah. it's, it's more like it kind of sneaks up on you and you think, wait a minute, when did that happen? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it was... When I then started looking back, I could remember during a retreat with Adya that there was this just this short moment, there was not this big bang, just this short, most ordinary moment that there just was something else here beside this human, yeah. that there was just this immensity, immense void, I don't know how else to say it. Mm -hmm. That was just it, there was not even the thought so much about it. And it was just way later that there was kind of more the realization to kind of in life, like, oh yeah, I, I just know I'm, I'm not this body. Mm -hmm. I'm not this mind. I'm not these feelings. I'm not these ideas. Kind of came after, it's, it's kind of like, kind of grew on me in a way. And uh, so it's in a way first realizing that you are not seeking anymore for something necessarily anymore. And it's like kind of, I'm not this body and, you know, what happens when I chop off my arm, I'm still that. What happens when I chop off my other arm, I'm still that. And when I chop off my legs, I'm still that. When I chop off the whole thing, I'm still that. So that's kind of realizing that there is something here that's just always here. Mm. So it's kind of more, you know, you come into space. I was reading so, about a Sufi saint, I forget his name, but they did that to him because he said, I am God, you know, and, yeah. and so they started, they dismembered him limb by limb, but he, he wouldn't stop saying it. All yeah. The, all yeah. The oh, interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. I've never heard that. Yeah. Never heard that. And then the second you could say, can you hear the singing? I hear some kids in the background or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I just have to say this, the, the religion I grew up with mm -hmm. is Football, soccer. Ah, uh, so they're watching the soccer match? Well, that's going to happen tonight uh -huh. after our interview, really. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Holland will be playing Costa Rica, so everybody will go crazy. So there's everything looks orange in Holland. I see. Uh, you know? <laughs> so that's what you hear in the background. Yeah. 
But anyway, then this 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 coming into space, so to speak, or into the silence, knowing that's what you are, then part of the next step, you could say, is like what I call incendence. I know the word doesn't exist, but I like it. You, you just, this space, this silence starts coming into the body, into your life, into into your whole life. And then that starts settling in. I often have this image of a magic wand that's just touching. It's the light of awareness touching everything inside mm. you. So it starts kind of entering into the human. And then, you know, first is, you could say there's a sense, you know, I go out of the way and then this love comes through or the silence comes through or this being comes through. But then you don't go out of the way anymore. You are that love. You you become that love and start speaking as that love and being as that love. So it's kind of sinking in into it till you, you know, is a sense of coming more into the world, coming, this love, this is tasted everywhere. And some people call it, it opens the heart. But to me, it just opens the whole body, it just opens your skin and your organs. And you feel the quivering of the, of the silence of your being, you feel it everywhere. And then it just totally settles in into your belly and your legs. What really connects more with if, if there's any deeper, deeper fear that's there for your existence, it will be met till it's like really, till that falls out also, kind of drops away. So it's an incendence, kind of the elevator goes down in. So that's to me like the awakening process. So first the, the awakening itself is spontaneous. You know, as you say, it's a thief in the night. And then the awakening after that is more process, a deepening, so that you really steep in it, so that you you only just know all there is 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 silence, all there is is love, or all there is is presence. In my experience, it's just learning. I don't even know it's a learning, but you just make. I don't even know if it was a choice for me, but just this love, this silence is just my, became my beloved, you know, became my first love. And the good thing of this first love is that there is, there are no abandonment issues, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I won't never leave you. I'm reminded of Christ on the cross, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was under such duress. And I know you have some genetic disease that influences your kidneys and your liver yeah. and everything. And do you still have problems with that? And do you have times when you, you're under a lot of duress and you feel like, wait a minute, am I losing it? Where did it go? I don't feel that <laughs> sense of ease that I'm so accustomed to. I feel it every day. Really? Yeah, I feel it every day. There's just, there was a period of some years there was every day a lot of discomfort. And now there's less discomfort. And uh, I'm confronted with it every day, so I need to care for myself quite well. And simultaneously, it's remarkably, I'm doing remarkably well. I'm kind of in awe. Mm. And um, So do you feel so, like this um, awakening to your true nature has made you physically more healthy uh, in a way that doctors could measure, actually? I think that the silence has done a lot of healing. Because I, uh, I actually didn't listen so much to doctors because I, I, <laughs> right. I don't really, I'm not too crazy about them. 
I have like a team of uh, alternative practitioners that work with me and also a regular doctor. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of in charge, so to speak. But I feel the deepest healer is the stillness. Mm -hmm. I literally feel the more the stillness settles in, it has been a process of I could really feel, how can I say this? There was discomfort and there were a lot of thoughts about discomfort, especially a lot of fear because I had a lot of fear to die. And so I remember, God, I think it's now eight or nine years ago, I woke up one time in the night and I, I had like, God, you know, I've been on the path, but I know I'm not fully baked. I just know it. So I remember doing a prayer. I said, okay, I just want to be completely baked and I just need your help. Please help me. And I went back to sleep. I didn't think much about it. And then two days later, I was in the hospital and then everything of this illness also had activated like really <laughs> like hundred on the scale and uh, I was in the emergency room and I remember laying there I was like oh I think it has to do with my prayer so then I, I took really quite a period of quite some years to cave I did I did work but it was very very challenging then but it was also so beautiful because just tasting the simultaneity of the deep silence and this human, Marlies, who was doing all she could, you know, to be okay or, or you know, to not be so afraid. And, but then this whole psychological layer just fell away because sitting, because I couldn't sleep very well and of the discomfort. So in the night I was sitting and sitting and sitting and then often I realized like, wow, this is not me, this is my mom, you know, because my mom had the mm. same illness and she died when she was quite young in her 40s. And I was like, oh, wow, this is not me, oh, this is not me. And I remember one day what was for me really funny, sitting with it, and it was just so much discomfort. And I was like, you know, just fuck it. I just want to be dead. And then I had to laugh. It's like, oh, yeah, here's what I'm so afraid of. <laughs> and then... So that changed a lot. And then I felt at some, I remember one day it was like, oh yeah, I feel like any overlay of the illness is gone. I'm just sensing only the pure sensation. And the more I taste the sensation, the less, how do you say, there's less discomfort. Mm -hmm. So this overlay gave extra discomfort and the fear of God gives extra contraction. And now it's more and more, I feel discomfort it's, it's, and it feels just pure physical. So there's no concern anymore. There used to be concern, you know, all the things I perhaps need to do about it. And now there's just such resting with it. It's uh, quite beautiful. Nice. And I just feel it every day. So it feels kind of my inner teacher. So it, it is a, a sense... I don't know, it's become my friend and, yeah. you know, I don't really speak so much anymore about being sick. I don't feel sick. I feel I'm whole and healthy and uh, and I just need to take care. There's some, uh, some certain features to, to this physicality. Nice. That's a good explanation. Yeah. And in a way I feel... I think Joel Goldsmith, I don't know if you have heard of that, Christian Science, mm -hmm. he speaks so beautifully about, you know, that the 
God is the true healer or spirit or the true nature. That's the only one that heals. And we are that. So in his mind, there's no illness. And uh, it's really wonderful to just sit with that, to really taste that. Yeah. I think sometimes people take that to extremes and refuse to give their their sick child a blood transfusion or something, you know. <laughs> but um, but definitely, I mean, I think you've, you've illustrated quite nicely in the last few minutes uh, the healing power of silence, you know, yeah. and, and of, of just sort of basking in your true nature and, and letting that work things out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another thing that you alluded to, you know, you're talking about those 10 stages in Zen, 10 stages to enlightenment. And, um, and realizing your true nature being the third, it's, it's sort of obvious from the way you've been speaking that, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but that you don't consider awakening to your true nature to be a sort of a black-white on-off kind of situation, but it seems to be a progressive unfoldment that just gets deeper and clearer and kind of more profound as you go along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that has been my experience, so that's really all I can speak of, but I, I also know, because I check, I have the luck that I can check with Adya also, you know, mm -hmm. I check with him things, and um, yeah, that has been my experience, it has been very natural, it feels very, very natural, just the steeping more and more as the silence, and and that's, then it's just now, it feels I'm just following orders in a way, that's how it feels, I, I just, uh, yeah, there's the flavor of Marlies, and uh, I enjoy Marlies. Actually, I enjoy her. And uh, but above all, there's or in all is this taste of of love. And I just feel so much love also for life and how she takes me all the time, and I how I am that life. Mm -hmm. And uh, truly, words cannot really describe the simultaneity of the profundity and the ordinariness altogether. So I, I just feel this deep bow every day, every yeah. day for all that's given and taken away. And that has been just this process has been really a process of saying yes, 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 this too, yes, yes. And, and that has been deepening. I, yeah, it's a deepening process, and then more and more, I just feel so emptied, and simultaneously so full, that, I don't know, I just had also in the retreat last week when I was teaching, and I was just struck by how I feel just space walking, I feel like a space walker, <laughs> and, <laughs> mm -hmm. and the space body, and all is welcomed in that, there's mm -hmm. no... There's just always welcome and tasted and received and just comes in and goes out and it's not up to me when it comes in and goes out and stays and uh, there's just an utter attending to what is and and that has been a process. I get the impression listening to Adya that it's his experience too that there's and and I would wager that it's probably everybody's experience relative to where they are. There's still a next horizon. There's still a, a deepening that's taking place, a clarification, yeah. a refinement. You know, different yeah. different areas for different people, maybe to different extents. I, mean, I even have a quote from Adya someplace where he says, "I feel like I'm just a beginner. I always feel yeah. like I'm just a beginner." Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
And, I agree. Uh, and probably agree. we all, no matter how advanced we are, I would suggest that probably we were all beginners relative to someone, relative, uh, relative, relative to some possibility. <laughs> but even relative to yourself. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also so beautiful because when you are this so-called space body, this open space, mm -hmm. then that is a beginning always. It's, it's a fresh moment. There's only one moment in a way, and in a way every moment is fresh and new. Mm. And it's just so freeing not to hold on to anything anymore. It's just a 100% attending to what is. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's fresh and that's new and that's beginner's mind, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to That's think that beginner's mind meant some kind of a novice state, and, and and these days I understand it more as being a sort of a a mature yeah understanding or, or state to be in. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I agree. Hmm. I agree. I remember when I kind of was so-called embarking on the path and being with Osho, and I was like, well, I remember him saying one of his birthdays, like. Uh, he was saying, I'm absolutely contented and um, and one day you will be too and perhaps today, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps the day after. And I thought, you know, that's what I want, to be absolutely contented. But I want to say something to that. Oh yeah, and there was for me this idea that it also had to do with gathering, you know, gathering more information and getting more understanding. and. Mm. But of course, it's totally the opposite. <laughs> it's just letting go. Out, you know, yeah. What more? What more can be taken away? What more can be let go of? And um, mm. yeah, it's just so beautiful, painfully beautiful. <laughs> yeah. A little while ago, I referred to people who you know say you shouldn't do practices, but there's also a, a kind of a thread in the spiritual world where people say, well, give up the search, because Papaji said that. He said, give up the search, and. Um, I got the impression talking to you that it's, if you want to put the horse before the cart, then you don't have to worry too much about giving up the search. Just mature into that fullness and you'll find yourself in a condition in which the desperate searching mentality ha has just disappeared and, and there is a contentment, as you were just saying in reference to Osho, there's a, there's a sort of predominant fulfillment and so you don't have that kind of Oh, life sucks, and I got to get out of where I am and into some better thing. You're con you're happy with where it is, where you are, yeah. even yeah. though there's still a continual unfoldment. But this is good yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think that in that also, it's really knowing that we're all in the world. We all have our, you could say, our samsara in the world. We all have mm -hmm. our job to do in the world. It's just to know we're not of the world. Yes. And I think that's, you know, we have heard it so much. I, I'm not saying something new. In the world, but, but not of it. You know? yeah, yeah, but when you really know that within, then there's also a joy to be in the world and do what you need to do, whatever it is, you know, paying your rent or doing going to the store or whatever it is, or attending to people or attending to what is to so-called daily mundane life. And when you know there's something greater than that, it's, it, it doesn't matter so much anymore. The, the way you are there, you're just there mm. and you're not resisting much anymore. You're just saying, yes, it's, uh, you know, this, this is part of life. This needs to happen. It's nice. I guess one way of looking at it is uh, 
you know, if a person were impoverished, then every little gain and loss, a dollar here lost, a dollar here gained, would be a big deal. It's like, oh boy, yeah. a dollar. You know, <laughs> but if you've won the lottery or something, you're a millionaire, then you know you can gain and lose thousands, yeah. and you know, yeah. it doesn't shake you up very much, you know, because yeah. there's a foundation. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's an interesting thing also because you know there are a lot of people that live uh, on the edge. And uh, I still hold a question that, yes, in one way, of course, when you've woken up, it's all settled, then the nervous system calms down. Mm -hmm. But when you're in that place of survival, it's, it's, it's quite a challenge or quite an invitation to, to uh, not go on, uh, how do you say that? You're so dependent in a way of your nervous system and it gets so easily activated when you don't have that one dollar. You know, it's one dollar, but for them it's one dollar is huge, yeah, you know. Yeah. And and so it's very challenging not to let that be taken by the nervous system and then you're shaking and, and it takes so much courage that in the midst also of those survival places to uh, learn to, to calm the nervous system and to learn to rest in oneself. And that's, you know, it's easier said than done when, you, when you're on the, how do you say that, on the edge. Yeah. Well, it can, be, it can sound very glib to just say this is the way we should be. I mean, you know, you've devoted a lifetime to this and, you know, you've really established something through that devotion. But there, you know, the vast majority of humanity is having a pretty hard time of it. Or, you know, it is. And, you know, you can't go into some village in Somalia and just say, "Oh, rest is the self." I mean, you know, they they need <laughs> yeah. food, they need medical care, they need, yeah. you know, it's a horrible political situation. I think a lot of people are really going through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah they are. They are, and yeah. I think also that that brings out the heart. Mm -hmm. It's it's an opportunity for all of us to, you know, to benefit to let all people benefit of our wakefulness and our love and in that way touch really truly all beings yeah and if as we were saying earlier the main vehicle for awakening is transmission you know like sitting in audio's presence presence or something then obviously if enough of us can awaken then we yeah. can, we kind of perform a global net you know, yeah. in which there's this kind of transmission happening all over the place to in, yeah. throughout our vicinity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally agree with me. It's just so beautiful. But you know, there there's also periods what's really good to just be really selfish, you know. <laughs> it's like, I want to wake up. I want to be free. And uh, that's part of the deal. At, at least that's how it was for me. Yeah, and, I think uh, that's natural. And it's very, very natural. And then it just naturally just opens up and it just wants to share and it wants to yeah. help. Or and it, want, it just cannot, you know, it goes from the personal to the impersonal. And uh, yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah, I'm reminded of that thing in the 23rd Psalm, you know, my cup runneth over. It's like if your cup isn't full, it, it's like leave me alone. I'm busy filling my cup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Well, when the cup exactly. is full, it just naturally starts to overflow. And yeah. I've seen yeah. that kind of transformation in many, many people. That it's like, yeah. yeah, I'm getting mine. Just leave me alone. And then at a certain point, they say, Well, how can I help you? You know. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's really wonderful to speak with you, uh, Rick. Well, thanks. Yeah. yeah and likewise.
So you became a, I don't know if Carla and Viram Verbeck are significant enough to talk about, but, or whether they had anything to do with Tantra, but very long you mentioned Tantra, and then there was Charles and Carolyn Muir, you became a certified Tantric educator. I didn't yeah. know there was a certification in that. And what, is, <laughs> what does it mean to be a certified Tantric educator? Not really. It's just a certificate that uh, Charles and Caroline give. Oh, okay. And they offer different trainings. I worked for them and it was just really lovely to work for them. And they really, well, first, uh, Caroline Firam, their brother and sister. Mm -hmm. And they uh, were also from our show, but they were also very much influenced by Barry Long and also by Hamid. Uh -huh. They are in the first group with Hamid here that started in Europe like 22 years ago. So they taught Tantra, yeah, they taught Tantra kind of a combination of those different teachers and really coming into the body and it was grounded into the silence. When most people hear the word Tantra, or a lot of people, they think, okay, Tantric sex, you know, that's, yeah. that's Tantra. And, but I understand from other friends like Igor Kufeyev that that's really only a small part of it. There's this whole big, huge thing. Yeah. And Lakshman Jew taught Kashmir Shaivism, and uh, I think Muktananda had some kind of relationship to that, whatever. It's, it's a whole school of wisdom. So put that in perspective for us. Okay. Well, to me, Tantra is very kind of saying yes to all of life. Mm -hmm. That's very simple. And to me, it's really learning to absolutely rest as the silence of your being, no matter what you're attending to. And then the movement and the way you live your life, you live as the silence, you let the movement come from that. So say in a way, let the speaking come from that and let the being come from that. So how I use it, I, I teach uh, trainings or trainings. I'm actually starting a training next year, but I teach in women's retreats. It's called the way of woman, silence and the female body. So to me, that's Tantra. It's like really first knowing who you are, waking up as that and then moving as that. And that does include sensuality and sexuality. And sexuality is basically, it includes the genitals. And that's so forgotten in most spirituality. What I thought was always so interesting, people can wake up to their true nature. And of course, you have the deepening process, but still they have so-called two left hands with their own body. You know, they don't, they, they're not really settled in their bodies. Mm. There's not really the love for the body. So I would say Tantra is learning to rest as the being that you are and then start moving as that. And that's mostly how I use it. So how would Tantra reconcile itself with the monastic traditions of all cultures? Would a Tantric adept recognize that, you know, those who chose a path of monasticism and celibacy were on a track that was appropriate for them? Or would they feel that that was sort of an incomplete path in some way and that theirs is more complete because it takes into account everything? Yeah, you know, I have not the answer to that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it really depends on the person that you speak because some people that I meet, like for instance, one woman that I think really beautiful of is her name is uh, Jetsuma Tenson Palmo. She is an, uh, a nun. Mm -hmm. So I assume sexuality is not happening that much in her life. <laughs> and to me, she is really fully baked, fully yeah. baked. 
And then there are people in the so-called Tantra world, the sexual Tantra world or Western Tantra world that to me are not absolutely not baked and and the other way around so they're using so, it as a license for indulgence or something yeah i would say so yeah, <laughs> yeah it's more about pleasure yeah and indulging into the pleasure you know there's nothing wrong with pleasure it's just not fully baked uh, perspective yeah so i would say in how i teach tantra and how it was taught to me well charles and caroline when they taught tantra they really said also it's western tantra what we teach it's western and hindu tantra those are the two tantras we teach so they really were clear about that but then also in in the time when tantra came more in you had a lot of monks of the of the monasteries that were not really fully baked and then came in contact with tantrikas who are really in the marketplace. And that was like, they, they would then come together and, and live their lives with these females and then became so-called fully baked. Mm. So to me, Tantra is the absolute total inclusiveness of all of life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of spirituality, you know, has been quite male oriented and very transcendental. And there's a beauty to it. It's just not the whole picture. You know, it's, it's a half-baked story in, in my mind. So to me, Tantra in that way is also, it's, it's just fully, totally inclusive of all of life. And really, especially including also the body in that. Mm. And a lot of, even in Advaita, it's quite disembodied. You know, it's even like Ramana, who I think is absolutely beautiful. And he, he lived quite transcendental in my, uh, my experience. What has its beauty to it? It's just not, not my interest. My interest is very much to include also the wonder of this body and the sensation and the, the taste of life, to taste that sweetness of life. You know, that's just so utterly beautiful. And I think more and more we come also in a time where the body is more included so that including also Mother Earth is included. Now we're all kind of hanging, hovering a little high above and to kind of really land on the Earth also. So to me, that's what Tantra is. There was a story about Shankara who uh, was a monk and who was the founder of, of Advaita really. And um, he would go around the country debating all these people. And if he won the debate, they would become his disciple. And that was the rule in those days. And yeah. he was supposed to debate this woman. The woman was enlightened and she was also, I guess, a, I don't know if she was a master of Tantra, but, you know, she included all the, her, her expertise included all the sort of worldly experiences. And he said, I, I'm not equipped to do this. And, and so there was a situation where some king was dying at that moment and he left, he, he put his body in a cave under the, guy, under the protection of some of his disciples and went and, you know, went into Samadhi and left his body and went into the body of the king just as the king was about to die. And boom, the king springs back to life. And not only the, the king, but this really bright guy, <laughs> much brighter than the king had been. And, and so he spent about a month, you know, enjoying all the pleasures of that life. And uh, the queens kind of got on to what was really happening and, and sent uh, emissaries out to find the body of Shankara and destroy it so they, he would stay in the king's body and be their husband. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just as the people were about to um, burn his body, they had found it, his disciples came to the court 
and because Shankara had begun to forget who he was, you know, as Shankara, mm -hmm. they come, they came to the court and began to recite some poetry that Shankara had written about the the nature of the self and everything. And, and when he heard that poetry, he remembered, oh, that's who I am. And he, the king's body dropped dead. Shankara went back to his actual body, came out of samadhi, and they and you know didn't get burned and went on and had the debate. I don't, I don't know whether he won it or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that story. I've never heard that. That's really great. That's really yeah. great. So on your on your website you have a whole page, a whole section about sacred sexuality. What is sacred sexuality as compared with, I guess we would have to use the antonym profane sexuality or <laughs> ordinary sexuality or something? Yeah, I would say for most people sexuality is kind of like friction sex, quite goal oriented. You know, we come together, we have so-called sex uh, to get an orgasm and then we're done. And so I make it quite black and white here. And uh, so I'm kind of here, hopefully, to broaden people's menu a little bit. And for me, sacred sexuality is just when you come together with your beloved, that you move from the stillness. You're not going immediately out there to the other. First, you're inside yourself. You rest as yourself. And when you truly rest as yourself, the way you come together it has a whole other pace. You really start receiving yourself and receiving the other. And you just be tasting. Because to me, I, I love one of the saying of uh, Dogen Senjay's enlightenment is the taste of the 1,000 things, something like that. Is the, and that's what to me is sacred sexuality, is the absolute taste of love whatever way she comes. So it is, it can in one way look the same, you know, two people kissing each other, if there are two males or two females or a male and a female, doesn't really matter. But it's like a, a coming together that comes from a stillness and it tends to be a lot slower and doesn't have the goal for an orgasm. If it has a goal, you could say, it's just to rest as the being that you are and let that being move. And then when you come together, you just let the bodies move. A lot of people, I think, when they make love, or I would call it having sex, it's more their minds having sex with each other, than really the bodies moving. So it's just in slow motion, kind of letting the bodies come together and let the bodies make love and see how the bodies enjoy being together. And I would say it's quite different than a lot of people do for a lot of people sexuality is a, just having a release so you can uh, sleep better <laughs> what was it somebody had done a research i don't know if it was johnson and johnson or but the amount of time people in america take to make love is like six and a half minutes masters and johnson <laughs> and masters and johnson that's right. what they are and uh, so that's not very long i would just barely lay down on the bed you know <laughs> to be with someone so to me sacred sexuality is really the the, the making of love that comes from the stillness of our being hmm. and when the stillness of our being moves us then in a way you can make love all the time it's not only when you lay in bed together it's also when you were when we're speaking here right now or when you walk outside but it is letting the body make love and it's not friction sex it goes slow and there's a connection and you don't do it particularly in the dark you just look into each other's eyes you know that's the window to the soul and 
and you just let the bodies move and be surprised and every time is different in a way after love making you come out rejuvenated you come out nourished you come out just a little softer and a little bit more alive a little bit more vibrant and a little bit more in yourself than before so that's what I call sacred sexuality with partners. What I also do, what I do also in some retreats, is uh, I offer sacred spot massage. So I actually internally, well, I don't start immediately, you know, I bring loving touch to the body. And if it's right, I also uh, massage the genitals. And uh, I don't do it with men, only with women. And teach women also how to do that with each other or teach couples and it tends to be an access point uh, g-spot <laughs> what funny and no name to men so it, uh, it's a sacred spot that's internally in the vagina and that seems to be the access point of uh, a lot of pain a lot of pleasure and a lot of possibility for healing internally in the body but it's mostly about bringing loving touch so that the skin comes to life, so that the body comes to life, and you just be together in that, in that sense of wholeness. So when you do those retreats, you yourself are going around the room massaging everybody, or is <laughs> no. explaining them how to do it themselves? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> that would be interesting. That's yeah, no, quite a retreat. No the, no, the women come in groups of three, uh -huh. and within each group is one, everybody has a chance to give for an hour, Everybody has a chance to receive for an hour mm. and everybody has a chance to be the nurturer for an hour. So you, as a woman receives, you lay in the lap of another woman. Mm -hmm. It's like a big ritual what I do and it's, it's very, very powerful. Mm. It really changes women's lives because there's so much uh, sexual abuse and so much sexual trauma. And... And women, can, women want to do that even if they're not gay they, they sort of massage yeah. each other and everything yeah huh. yeah they are well and of course there are always i get always questions of women they are afraid to become gay or women they're afraid to fall in love with another woman because i know if it or, were a bunch of guys they say hey man i'm not gonna do that you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah guys they're just different <laughs> yeah it's different guys are just different i don't know but um you know, I happen to be in a female body, so <laughs> that's what I, I do. Not with everybody, of course, and not everybody is interested, and it's not for everybody also. And, you know, and I even wonder myself sometimes, like, gee, you know, why are you doing this a little crazy? Yeah. But then every time when we, we're in the ritual, it, it's just so beautiful. And then the shift that happens in the lives of these women, it's often the first time they have been touched with love and not any goal that something needs to happen mm -hmm. and this it, a shift happens in their lives and you know i have women come that have really woken up to their true nature and they know they know who they are and some of them have such heavy duty trauma and then during these retreats i'm just amazed every time myself uh, so much changes and their, their life changes and there's a deepening it comes and because um, we I, I think we should not underestimate that yes who we are is male nor female and still we in my experience I come in a female body that has the personal 
conditioning, but also the collective conditioning. And still, so-called in the world, the biggest industry is the sex industry. And the biggest industries growing is the sex industry. Sex trafficking is huge and still growing. And there's the misuse of little boys and little girls from three, four years on. And it's hundreds and thousands. It's like unimaginable. I can't mm. get that number down, but that's just how it's misused. And we all, you know, we all taste that. Yeah. And when we don't meet that, and for some reason, you know, that's what I'm doing. And sometimes I feel a little weird that I'm doing it, and but it feels so natural. And I think it has to do because I had some abuse in my own, in my teens, that I was raped a few times, and that was the way it got healed here in in my body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like women are interested in that, and then and that's what seems to be happening. I don't do it in all the women's retreats. You know, some women's retreat is just, you know, like satsang. Right. And uh, some retreats I I do offer that too. And women always have the freedom to join or not, and. So far, they always have, and can be tremendous healing during the ritual to keep your clothes on, you know, because you don't have to do it. You can just have, for instance, one woman have one hand on your belly or one hand on your vagina and the other hand on your heart. Just that during the whole ritual with your clothes on, mm -hmm. that can be the most profound healing that finally somebody listens to you and that just sinks in, you know, or, or being touched in a loving way and when it's enough it's enough and somebody listens to you so you know it's it's beautiful it's really yeah. beautiful well you know what you just said about the, the amount of sex trafficking in the world and all and all that horrible stuff that's going on and you know child prostitution and everything and it obviously something like that is symptomatic of something deep malaise in collective consciousness. There's something really wrong that, that yeah. this is so prevalent. So maybe what you're doing is just making a contribution to the healing of that through the work you're doing. Maybe a small contribution, but you know, you're you're making it. It's and perhaps you're helping to heal or resolve something in collective consciousness which eventually will help to diminish that kind of stuff. I hope so. But you know the thing is what what I find so interesting in my own life is, I never thought I was going to do all these things. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I remember, you know, I had the interest in sexuality and healing had happened, etc., etc. But I remember when Adi asked me to teach, well, first I had like, you know, why did you ask me, you know, <laughs> ask somebody else. But then when I got over that and sat with it, what came to me was to first offer satsang for women only. Mm. So I remember talking with Adya about it. I said, you know, why, why should I? He said, just listen to that, you know, just go for it. So that I did. And then it started just unfolding more and more to bring in sexuality and, and just really bringing all of life. So the total inclusiveness. And now I find myself, you know, doing women's retreats. What I, it's just happening. So it's, it's, I feel I'm just following orders also in that realm. You ever find yourself um, doing something on, in a teaching capacity, and then after a while you think, "Eh, that's kind of crazy. I'm not going to do that anymore," or you just get tired of it, or absolutely, 
the only th sense I sometimes have, like, that I'm kind of bored with myself. Uh -huh. When I say something, uh, said that a thousand times. Oh, Jesus, man. <laughs> something <laughs> else, something needs to happen. Yeah. And to me, it, it, it tends to be in a place when I know I need to take a next step, even if I'm not quite sure what it is. Mm -hmm. But then part of, you know, wants a little to hold on to the old. But yeah, I, I do I do know that yeah. sense. So it's yeah. an evolving I think thing. it takes yeah, I think it takes really courage as a human and then especially in the role as a teacher to to be fresh. Yeah. To really dare to be fresh and new. Yeah. So what's Hakomi? You teach Hakomi also? Yeah. Hakomi is as a body-centered psychotherapy method. Huh. So it's basically a method that you can use as a Whoa. What's that? Thunder. That We're having a thunderstorm. Thunder. Yeah, All right. Big one. <laughs> it's a it was the 4th of July yesterday, too. We're supposed to have fireworks tonight, so nature's giving us some fireworks today. Okay, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> so, as a psychologist, I use Hakomi, and Hakomi... Sounds Japanese. Yeah, there's a lot of people th think it is that. Well, it was uh, a uh, method invented or developed by a man called Ron Kurch. Mm -hmm. And it's actually interesting. He started kind of including in his weekends the body. And then some people said, you know, Ron, you need to give it a name. And he said, well, I don't have a name. And that weekend, somebody got in a dream. I think it was he was dreaming or somebody else. I can't remember. But somebody in a dream gave to Ron the title, and that was Hakomi. Mm -hmm. So they came together the next day and he, he said, or somebody else said, you know, I, I got the name Hakomi and nobody knew what it was. And then somebody had an, some kind of an alternative dictionary. And what it means in, uh, I think it was Hopi Indian, means who am I? Huh. How do I stand to all these realms? Hmm. So in Hakomi... How do I what to all these realms? Stand, stand. to all these Stand to all these realms. Wrongs, okay. Realms, R-E-A-L-M. Oh, realms. Realms. realms, realms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My pronunciation. <laughs> but within this method, you do little experiments in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So it's not regular talk therapy, where you just talk and you let somebody just blah, blah, blah the whole time. But you kind of really come in contact with the storyteller and not so much with their story. The story is included, but you really meet the person where they are and you bring in mindfulness. Yeah, you do little experiments and find out how the person has organized himself or herself. And you just, it works a lot with core beliefs and how they are rooted in the body. So this and, is something you do as a therapist, one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah. yeah, but you know, I, I don't feel there's much separation anymore between the therapist or Marlies working with sexuality or Marlies uh, satsang. It feels like one. Yeah, you have different tools in your toolbox, right? Yeah. 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 According to the need. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I listen, yeah. I'm writing down things that I got from your website and all of it. You also mentioned Kashmirian Tandava dance, and you're really into dancing, also West African and Nia. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, cool. and especially Congolese. I I feel my other spiritual teacher is my Congolese dance teacher. Hmm. It's Vivian, and he's to me the most amazing dancer on this planet. Hmm. And you can be an amazing dancer and a terrible teacher, but he is like a most amazing teacher also. So when I'm in Santa Cruz, 
I go to his classes. Any class he teaches, I go to. I, I love that. So when you were young, you were shy, and when you, first, yeah. when you first went to Osho, you were afraid to make noise or anything, and now you're like doing Congolese dance. Yeah. Were you much of a dancer when you were young, or were you too shy to dance? No, I was in, in ballet. I did one or two years ballet, uh -huh. but that's, you know, that's very quiet yeah. and very structured. Even though Congolese dance is quite structured also, it's, it's certain movements you make. Probably more West yeah, West African is more jumping and Congolese is more down to the ground, very mm. sensual. Mm. And, uh, but we always have live drummers and uh, it's, very, it's always a happening. Sounds like fun. It's really fun. I must say, when I travel, the main thing I miss is my Congolese dance class. <laughs> yeah. Should go to the Congo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you also mentioned Lama Tsultrium Alione. Tsultrium Alione, yeah. yeah. What's that? Who's that? She is, uh, she is a lady uh, who set up a big, how do you call that, Tibetan Buddhist center in mm -hmm. uh, Colorado. I forgot the name now for a moment. You studied with her? Yeah, I did once, uh, actually together Sharon, with Sharon Landrit. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Yeah, Sharon and I did a week-long retreat with her together. Mm -hmm. And it was very beautiful, very beautiful. I think she's really beautiful. I didn't study more than that. Um, it's just, uh, there was also for me a period where being asked to teach by Adya, you kind of kicked out of the nest. Yeah. And at least that's my experience. And uh, what's really very freeing, and simultaneously also, there's no structure, no nothing. So I had also a little while some insecurity, you know. Oh, perhaps another teacher that can give me some more structure. Uh -huh. Part of me was searching. And so once she was part of my search in a way, I was deeply touched by her and the teachings. They're really, really beautiful. Mm. But also realizing, oh yeah, this is not my lineage. This is not what I do. Yeah. And to really come to terms that, that I need to bring forth what wants to come forth as Marlies. And uh, how she wants, you know, whatever wants to be expressed here and not taking that from anywhere else. And um, so that was part of the journey. The image comes to my mind of a honeybee. Marlies is like this honeybee that's going from flower to flower, you know, cross-pollinating them, picking picking up stuff here, carrying it over there. You know? Yeah, exactly. And Hakomi, Hakomi is also like picks up from a lot of other methods. So within Hakomi, there's also yeah. a joke. You know, how much more can we steal? That's great. So, but it's it's. I feel now I'm really in my flavor. Yeah. And the uh, flavor is deepening and uh, it's just there's just now 100% trust and 100% mm. uh, whatever 100% is in this moment, rootedness in, in the being that I am. And, and that took uh, time to come to that complete trust. Yeah. There is a lot of cross-pollination happening in the world, isn't there? I mean, it used to be that with, with no communications or means of travel, people had a certain tradition and they just did that. And, and these days, you know, look at my site, look at everything else that's on the internet. You can just uh, check out everything under the sun and pick up, yeah. you know, bits and pieces here and there, right. uh, you know, right. whatever Absolutely. is of value to you. Absolutely. But I imagine for you interviewing all these different people, that must be, I, I think it must be so fascinating because everybody brings a different piece. Yeah, it's really enriching for me. And, um, yeah. you know, it's not like I go and spend 
retreats with everybody and, and you know, delve deeply into what they're doing. I would like to do that too, but it's, it's more like, but at least I, I spend a week or so, you know, reading and listening and really doing my best to get a sense of who they are and what they're doing. And uh, every, every week is enriching. It kind of adds a yeah. new ingredient to the soup. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I understand that. Yeah. And that, that makes me actually curious when you listen to the things that, to my voice, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, what did you get curious about? Or what, what is uh, at least what we didn't talk about yet? But is there anything that, that struck you or? Well, um, I usually don't take notes because I'm usually listening while I'm riding my bike or you know, cutting the grass or things like that. But I just kind yeah. of get to know the person and get a yeah. feeling for them. And sometimes questions will form in my mind, which I'll remember when I interview them. And other times it's more like I become their friend, even though they mm -hmm. may, have, may not have met me yet. And then when I talk to them, I can have a chat as friends, you know, that yeah. I, I kind of know you. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know, in your case, I'm trying to think, there was just a lot of aha moments as I was listening to you. It's like a feeling of, yeah, that feels right. I know what she's saying and I can relate to that because I had that experience myself or, or whatever. You know, whereas there have been a few people I've listened to and I think, holy crap, how am I going to interview this guy? <laughs> I don't, you know, he's, he's not like connecting at all. You know, there was just a lot of affinity, right? yeah. which I feel with a lot of people because there's so yeah. many people who are just really on a good wavelength these days. Yeah. It's really genuine what's happening in the world and, and it gives me a lot of optimism as, because I really feel like the world's problems, which could, you know, do us in, are a, a symptom of something which people like yourselves are applying the medicine to where it's needed, you know, at the deepest level, and that the medicine is becoming more and more plentiful all over yeah. the world, and that we can hopefully expect to see some of these symptoms, you know, diminish uh, as, yeah. as collective consciousness rises. Yeah, yeah. We're living in precious times. Huh? I, yeah. I find we're living in such amazing time that there's through the internet how everybody can come in contact, but also this this opportunity we have to wake up and then to stabilize that and bringing that everywhere. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, it's exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a whole other little package that I had in mind that I wanted to talk mm. to you about is it I like these interviews to be really comprehensive and deep as possible so if there's anything I ha I should have said this in the beginning but if there's anything I haven't thought to ask that you know you like to talk about don't hesitate to bring it up you know is there in a way I think I, I said it already I, th I think for me what I didn't know on forehand so to speak when I embarked on this whole adventure is I feel such love for the human and I feel that has been missed by so many for long and I feel it's coming in more and more and just the inseparability of our humanity and our divinity I would say that that's what touches me so deeply I'm kind of even while I'm speaking it right now it just touches me it's just it's just so beautiful when we really bring that together and we don't have to make any separation anywhere anymore mm. that all all absolutely all is welcome and can be received yeah so that's where my love is i guess my love is everywhere but <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so and that's what comes to mind right now
Well, you know, Muktananda used to say, uh, God dwells within you as you. And, uh, and also, if we think of what God really is, then God dwells within everything as the essence of that thing, that being that thing, that whatever, whether it's a rock or a person, or every, that there's that sort of divinity permeating omnipresently the entire creation. There's yeah. no place where it can't be found. We're, we're like, and, and we're like little fish swimming in that ocean. You know, waking up to that, as I think you've been saying, is the greatest marvel and the greatest uh, privilege and adventure. What better way could there be to live one's life than to dedicate it to, to that awakening, that realization? Yeah, yeah, mm. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one size does not fit all. I mean, you know, mm. every... So there are some people who will totally resonate with Marlies and think, oh, I got to go see Marlies, do retreats with her, whatever. Other people say, eh, not so much. I think I'll go you know, check out this other guy. And, yeah. and that's part of the beauty, I think, of what's going on in the world with the Internet and yeah. with all these different teachers. It's like, who was it that said the next Buddha will be the Sangha? It's kind of a more of a many-to-many -many setup now rather than one-to-many. And there's, there's such a variety of possibilities. And that doesn't water it down. I mean, look at the way nature is. You go to the rainforest and there's just a, a million different kinds of bugs and plants and there's just great proliferation of diversity and richness. Mm -hmm. And I think we're kind of seeing that in the, in the spiritual scene of the world. There's this, yeah. this, the awakening is not all of one flavor. It's not like, okay, Jesus is here and he's going to be everybody's teacher. Yeah. <laughs> it's more, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more yeah. like, like, you know, using the rainforest as an example, when the ground of the, of the forest gets more nutritious, then all the diversity thrives. And it's kind of yeah. like the spiritual ground of the world is getting, is waking up and it's, it's resulting in a diversity of expressions that we've never seen before. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And within that, it's also so important for everybody to trust their taste and where they want to go. Mm. What touches them to trust that? that it's not the same as anybody else. And I actually wrote last year an article also about kind of the setup of satsang. Mm -hmm. You know, because satsang tends to be, there's one teacher on stage yeah. that tends to be male. It's changing now, it's more females coming too, but tends to be male. And then you have the audience mm -hmm. and, and that tends to be more females than males. But okay, you have teacher and audience. and. And then there's this agreement, like the teacher has it and does it and knows it. And me and the audience, well, yeah, I have a kind of, but perhaps not totally. And then I think we are shifting more and more into to step out of that paradigm, mm. to step out of the paradigm where you as teacher can get hooked to it too. You know, I'm oh, the yeah. teacher, so I know, or I'm the student, so I don't know. And yeah, he or she tells me I'm the same, but I'm not really, yeah, perhaps <laughs> I am, you know. Yeah. And I, I think there's, there's, uh, we're in kind of a, a deepening of more and more people waking up, but also more and more people settling in that ground of being. And I think also, that takes as teacher more and more taking on the role of being undefended mm. and being more transparent. Mm -hmm. I know in my own development, when I was just asked to teach, because one of the things I felt was strange for me, I was asked to teach, but I didn't feel particularly enlightened. So 
I had said to Adya, you know, just ask somebody else because I know enlightenment hasn't happened here. How can I, you know, how can I teach? That doesn't make any sense. But, well, I got over that. But he said, you know, it's more important to be in integrity than to be enlightened. And I said, okay, I can do that. But in the beginning, there was a defendantness in me because, you know, there was some idea how I thought I was supposed to be as a teacher to know things and act a certain way. Yeah. Till I'm gratefully so, fell away. So I just feel just myself, no matter if I'm talking with you or having dinner with my friends or teaching. And I think that's, that's really a big gift for, as it is for me being with Adya, seeing his humanity. I feel just me being in my humanity is a huge, is a gift for people also because they get touched by that and then more and more le learn or receive their own humanity in the midst of their divinity. And uh, I think we, we, we kind of have big possibility to more and more shift in that, more kind of a equality, you would say. It's not so patriarchal anymore and also Within traditions, so many traditions are very male-oriented and more and more females can come in now. But it's just the last few years. It hasn't been that long. So I feel we're on the verge, you know, of, of new possibilities. And I think for all of us within that, we have an opportunity to truly, truly wake up, but then also truly, absolutely, totally own our awakening. Not like, oh, I'm awakened, but really like <laughs> own that beauty and start living as that in, in a non-egoic way, mm. non-selfish way. And to me, that, that is the, so beautiful when that starts happening. Those are good points. I mean, so many teachers have gotten in trouble because they are on a pet, they, either they or their students have put them on a pedestal they feel that they are beyond reproach and that whatever they think must be cosmic because they're thinking it and therefore they, they can do it, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, don't question me, I'm the guru, I know best. Yeah. And, and boy, I mean, the bigger they are, the harder they fall and yeah. many have fallen. I think what you're describing here is, a, is safer for the teachers and yeah. really better for the students because it's, it's not like somebody like Adya isn't special in a way and doesn't have yeah. a wisdom and a depth that most of us don't have and Absolutely. That, you know we, we would benefit from sitting with him uh, yeah. but at the, at the same time he you know I think one of his things that makes him so appealing is that he just comes across as so what you see is what you get, you know, so, yeah. so regular. He's, he's, there's not even a hint of putting on airs or, yeah. you know, yeah. being holier than thou or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's very, very freeing to have an example like that in, in front of you. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah. yeah, I think that's beautiful. Yeah. I heard you say in one interview, I think it might have been with um, Renata McNay, you know, you said, well, I'm awake to my true nature. But I don't know exactly what enlightenment is, so I guess I'm not enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you have any idea, uh, in your own way of understanding things, what enlightenment is, and how we can contrast that with stage three in the Zen thing you, you mentioned, being <laughs> being awake to one's true nature? I mean, what is the? Yeah. If we want to think of, and some people don't like the word goal, but if we want to think of enlightenment as the as stage ten, the ultimate yeah. realization, yeah, yeah. what is it? 
Well, I can only speak in my experience. In my experience, it is deeply knowing that I am not this, not this body, and simultaneously I am this also, and that's it. So that's <laughs> it's what enlightenment like would be? be? Yeah, the deep knowing of that and then moving as that. So, But don't you already have that? Yeah, so I do. And I, well, <laughs> who knows, perhaps I am. I think in our hearts, we all know what enlightenment is. We all know what enlightened action is, natural movement is. You know, I, I think it would be really interesting to really have a school, you know, how we go to school and we be tested. Mm -hmm. I, I think it would be so fascinating, all the people that say they're enlightened or awake or whatever, that we get tested. Yeah. And to really find out, because... What do you think some of the tests would be? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I know for myself, I, uh, in one way, there is a knowing, there is a fully bakedness. Mm -hmm. And in another way, I question, I still question. Uh, so I don't say enlightenment has happened here because I, I can't say that for sure. Yeah. Well, I certainly can't. It's an interesting discussion because the, if we're going to use words, they have to mean something or they should mean yeah. something. Otherwise, yeah. we're miscommunicating. And yeah. uh, personally, I just reserve the E word for you know, some kind of superlative, ultimate <laughs> realization, whatever that might yeah. be. And even then, I suspect that once one is established there, there's still a horizon, you know, and some more refinement or something. So I just don't know where, where to draw the line or really what the word, what, how we should use the word, you know, what, yeah. for what state we should reserve that particular word. Right. Well, that's a really good question because as many people you will ask, everybody will give another answer. I can only say what, you know, I feel really free. I feel liberated. And for me, that means that I feel what I mentioned before. I feel like a space body, <laughs> even though I feel quite embodied. And I feel there's an utter beingness here that fully receives life. There's just, as far as I'm aware, there's no resistance to anything anymore. Mm. And there's an utter letting life in and letting life out and there's an utter kind of being in the world and not simultaneous not being of it so mm -hmm. there's a sense what i feel all the time in this deep silence and this space so i feel like space walking really mm -hmm. and to me that's liberation i'm not sure if that's enlightenment i truly don't know it's funny because i just had <laughs> i had always two wishes there was like I want absolute enlightenment, mm -hmm. and I want lots of new clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and so the new clothes, that's kind of fine now. Yeah, you got but that. But there's no, I got that, got that down. <laughs> and enlightenment, I truthfully, I don't know, and there's not that interest anymore. So yeah. I can only say that kind of seeking dissolved itself, mm -hmm. and there's still an ongoing maturation happening. So within that, I do feel liberated, yeah. but I don't know if that's necessarily enlightenment. And, yeah. and in that way, I hold it partly the same as you hold it, that to me, Adya is enlightened. To me, Amanji is enlightened. Mm -hmm. For me, those kind of big names. But also some, you know, there's a guy on the, do you know Mount Madonna? Uh, it's a retreat center in yeah, a retreat California, center. right? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, and there's this 
teacher there. I don't know if he calls himself teacher or guru or whatever. He hasn't been speaking for the last 40 years. Mm. And he's the most ordinary man. For me, to me, he is enlightened, mm. very, very quiet. But I think in our hearts, when we look, we can feel when there's enlightenment around us yeah. and, and within us. But, uh, you know, I think it would be great if we have a school and then we get tested. Yeah, we, they should be know? able to test your brain waves. And yeah, stuff test and, brain waves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They try to do that here in my town at uh, Marushi University of Management. There's a guy named Fred Travis who's been doing that kind of study for years, testing people's brain waves and trying to establish physiological parameters for various yeah. states of consciousness. And I think yeah. it's, it's very much a work in progress, but I think he's, yeah. he's actually published some interesting stuff. Yeah, there's something in the Indian tradition where they, they describe 16 kalas. You know, you had your 10 things in Zen where they describe 16 kalas, and these are supposed to be levels of evolution. And yeah. apparently the human beings occupy the fourth through the eighth, something like that. Oh. So Ramana Maharshi and Ama and people like that might be in the eighth. But then there are like, you know, eight kalas above that. Uh, <laughs> and oh, so, so yeah. if that's true, then the whole yeah. word enlightenment is just sort of a relative term, you know, <laughs> yeah. we can sort of take examples like you mentioned uh, as being the enlightened people on this planet, but relative to what might theoretically be possible in the universe, uh, you yeah. know, they could be yeah. kind of in the backwaters. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. But I think my, in my experience also one of the, how would you call it, side effects or features that you can see in someone that's really free or enlightened or liberate is they're just quite generous and yeah, they're quite yeah, yeah. quite they really want to benefit really want to benefit all beings yes. want to benefit who is right in front of their nose and it's just a natural gesture you just flow over you're just overflowing doesn't mean you're all like oh like that it, it's just very natural natural overflowing and then natural trust in life and um, yeah it's just a kind of didn't Ramana say something perseverance at all situations at all times it's like just really having that vigilance and that mm -hmm. open presence at all situations at all times I do feel that um, <laughs> so perhaps I qualify I don't know yeah. <laughs> it's interesting for me because it used to be important to get enlightened to get there Mm -hmm. so-called get there and now it's not I just I just feel there's a deepening and I feel I feel drawn still to go in and in and in and in that that's just what's happening yeah. and then there's the old overflow outwardly and there's just uh, gratitude there's just really every day I, I there's so much gratitude for all that is and all that isn't and mm -hmm. I'm just in awe truthfully all day just I overcome with it still. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think that the acid test for you will be if uh, the Netherlands lose the soccer world thing. Man, that's it. Yeah. That's it. You'll be so like we on, will the, see. on the yeah. floor <laughs> in misery and we'll say, no, she's, she's not there. <laughs> yeah, I know. We will find out tonight. We start tonight and when they play against Costa Rica. Yeah, I know. If we lose, you know. Yeah. It's good we do the interview now and not after. <laughs> I know, you'll be like, you know, drinking whiskey tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All day. <laughs> yeah. ah, great. Well, this has been delightful. I guess we better wrap it up. Uh, any final parting thoughts or are we good? I just want to say, I think, one thing that, first of all, just thank you. Oh, thank thank you. you so much. And you benefit so many people. 
by doing this. It's yeah, very touching. I find very touching what you offer. It's very fulfilling so for me as well. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I also just want to mention that I offer satsang for men and women also. You right. know, I offer retreats for men and women so that men, sometimes feel men feel a little left out. So right. and they ask if they can come and drag and things like that. <laughs> Perhaps one day it will happen. But uh, I offer also sign retreats for men and women. And uh -huh. um, yeah, I just want to mention that. And it has been a delight to be uh, invited by you to uh, be uh, uh, interviewed. Sure. Yeah, thanks. On your website, it probably lists your retreats, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'll be linking to that. And yeah. um, it's just marleyscochere.com, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's and, right. M-A-R-L-I-E-S-C-O-C-H-E-R-E-T. -E -E but I'll be linking to that from batgap.com. So. Okay, great. So let me just make a few concluding remarks that I always make. You've been listening to or watching an interview with Marlies Cochere de la Morinière. <laughs> <laughs> Got it right. This is an ongoing series. So there are about 230 something of them now. If you go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, you will see them all. There's an alphabetical index down the right hand side. There's a, a past interviews menu and under that there's a chronological index and a categorical index of all the different interviews. There's also a, a favorite interviews page where people have voted which ones their favorites are. I don't think it's completely statistically significant, but it gives you some flavor of some of the more popular ones. There's a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to if you're on YouTube, and YouTube will notify you when a new interview pops up. There's a place on my website where you can uh, subscribe to an email notification. It just says, uh, join our mailing list or something. So you'll get about one email a week each time a new interview is posted. There's a donate button on there, which I appreciate people clicking. It makes it possible for me to do this. What else? There's a discussion group that uh, each interview has its own page in the, dis in the discussion forum. And some of them get very lively, some of them not so much, but each interview has its own page. So you'll see a link to that on Marlisa's page and you can get in there. And you have to, I think, register on the site before you can actually see the messages that have been posted or post anything. So if you go there and you don't see anything, it's because you haven't registered yet. So you have to do that. There's a login or register button. This also exists as an audio podcast and just about as many people listen to the audio as watch the video. So if you want to subscribe to that, there's a link on each one, each interview where it says subscribe to the podcast and you can just click that and subscribe. That just about covers it. You haven't written any books yet, right, Marlies? <laughs> no, it's in the make. Okay, it's in the make. On a book. <laughs> uh, so I'll just link to your website and people can go there and find out what you're doing. And if, if they're in the Santa Cruz area, they could probably sit with you as a therapist if they wanted to, right? Yeah, they can. And But I also offer sessions over Skype. Okay, if people are great. interested, I offer half hour or one hour meetings. Mm -hmm. And then I travel one -on -one. in the moment. I've been traveling a lot in Holland and Europe and yeah. uh, UK and Ireland. Okay. And then in August, I'm uh, going back to uh, America. Good. And then you'll be out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference again. I'll see you out yeah. there. Okay, well, that tells people what to do. I think they can figure it out. So um, thank you again, and um, thanks to all who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Next week is going to be with a fellow named Bernardo Castrup, and uh, we're going to be talking about a book he wrote called Materialism is Baloney. <laughs> mm, yeah. Interesting. Kind of a, one of those more intellectual yeah. academic guys, and, but it interests me. And uh, yeah. so we'll have that conversation. So thanks. Thank you.